I always like the recording in progress thing always scares me. <laughs> That's a new thing. I don't think we had it before. So that's cool. Uh, I will say this. I am for some reason actually nervous about this one. I usually am not, but this morning I'm a little nervous. So we shall see what happens and how many times my tongue gets tongue twisted and maybe my thoughts get jumbled up. But I believe that you are all um, far smarter and uh, able to comprehend far more than I can uh, in, in the time that I have. So I leave it up to you to uh, take responsibility and interpret as much of all the text that Beatrice read, plus some more uh, that we'll be looking at um, this morning. So, oh, thank you for all the words of edification. You don't have to do that. I'm just saying, putting it out there. A little nervous, but we'll start off um, this morning. Uh, I will... Huh. I'll show my screen now and explain a little bit of what's going on with the emoji. So I actually interpret this emoji as like, oh, like, I can't believe this is what happened. You know, when you're texting someone and they tell you some juicy news and you respond with, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So I, <laughs> this morning, I actually looked up the meaning of this emoji and what it actually means is that you cover your mouth, not to speak, to mute, very relevant to our experience this morning, with at least all of you muted. Um, on the internet, people generally express emotions of rapture, smirk, shy smile, or happiness. So not exactly what I was going for in this discussion on um, adultery, sexuality, sexual identity, um, some other things that we're gonna talk about too in light of the seventh commandment this morning. Um, so I, after writing everything out, I've decided to come up with a new uh, topic. I mean, title. It'll. It's um, this message this morning is titled "Living Life and Giving Life." Um, so, not very related to the emoji, but I hope that now we are we all know what this emoji means, and I do too. Moving away from that, uh, I want to begin this morning a little bit reflecting on Father's Day giving you all a small assignment from the start because I do uh I am a teacher so that's what I like to do and um as always opening with a prayer and this time a prayer of praise so a little bit um of my personal story not mine necessarily but the story of my family uh when my mom was pregnant with my sister I'm the one who's right after me she attended a Sunday service where she saw her father rise during a call to repentance at a small charismatic church in our hometown. She would often recount stories of the hardships of her childhood when she had to give up violin lessons because her parents were going through a divorce. How she feared returning home because her father might be drunk and angry. How she and her mom were rescued by a stranger in the middle of the night when her dad decided to beat my grandmother, outside their apartment complex. I don't know why my mom opened up with these stories to me, but I think it helped her continue to cycle through forgiveness despite the depth of trauma she received from the man who called um, himself her father. And last night as I was writing this, I realized that my mom was actually my age when um, that experience took place when she saw him um, stand up 
and the call to repentance. And she saw him with tears in his eyes walk towards the preacher to pray. And what my mom recalls uh, in her stories is that for the next few months, my grandfather stepped into my mother's life and they built a relationship, but it didn't last long. Because after years of alcohol abuse, his liver at 54 could not keep his life. He passed away. And to this day, I have never seen a picture of my grandfather. I don't know what he looked like because I think my grandmother got rid of any memory of him. And it took her, my grandmother, almost two decades after his death to verbally express that she had forgiven him. But she rarely talks about him with us. When I think about the darkness that both of my parents experienced in their childhood and adolescence, I am moved to love them even when I don't agree with them. And I want to honor them because they showed me how to honor their parents despite their parents' faults and failures. And today, I don't really want to focus too much on this sad story, but I do want to encourage all of you, as Elder Jerry said, if you are able, to go and hug your dads. It's awkward in any cultural upbringing. It's foreign for all of us. Physical touch is just not something that we're very comfortable with. But at the same time, it's not impossible. We've talked about this before and we talk about it again. We didn't choose our parents and they didn't choose us. And yet we are their offspring and they are our guardians. And today we're gonna consider the seventh commandment and look at how messed up people really messed up. And notice that the conclusion of their stories in the midst of the mistakes and, and rapid decisions that they make was not death. That was not the end of the story. Rather, it was the beginning of life, of newborn life. And that in and of itself is the beginning. So today on Father's Day is a reminder that you are a beginning for your parents and a continuation of their human qualities. You also are continuing a generational movement, a generational experience of emotion, of trauma, of flourishing, of language learning and transmitting, and of tradition. But what's really unique, and I think that Mike talked about this like last week, is that we're also springing up new movements expressing our emotions in a different way, facing our own trauma, learning to flourish, now speaking cross-cultural languages and instilling new traditions. For example, the commemoration of Juneteenth, which is now a national holiday. So let us rejoice and be glad for the Lord is good throughout all generations, despite some of the ickier parts of it. And his loving kindness springs forth abundantly. So let's pray a prayer of praise and then begin this morning's message. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Son of God, Holy Trinity, we come before the great mystery uh, in awe and 
truly humbled because we know that the words we say today, uh, the emotions we feel today will pass through and will begin another day and another season. But we thank you for the present now and that the hope that you fill us with through the resurrection of your son, through the fulfillment of your spirit, and through God's ongoing forgiveness and work in this world, evident in creation, evident in our lives in this community, and um, constantly being revealed to us individually, uh, I hope. Lord, I ask that as we dive into the story of Tamar and the story of the unnamed woman at the well, and consider some of the other stories of men and women in the Bible who experience things that are not foreign to us today. Lord, show us and reveal to us your face so that we may also be moved towards compassion, towards forgiveness, and towards love of our own bodies and of the bodies of other people. We thank you for the nicer climate that we are experiencing this morning. And we pray that we live into the fullness of it. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. So who is Tamar? I actually really liked the way Beatrice pronounced it. I think that's probably a more, um, uh, a closer uh, uh, pronunciation of it than how uh, the American language, the English language does it, Tamar. I think Tamar is actually a lot more beautiful too. So the story of Tamar is seemingly hidden from view in the high drama of the Joseph narrative. Joseph, the one with the coat of many colors, the son of Jacob, the 12th, the 11th brother in the tribe, uh, well, in the tribes that will become um, the son, that were the sons of um, Jacob. So it's situated in Genesis 38, and it's a whole chapter just dedicated to Tamar and Judah, as well as all Judah's entire family. And it's a rather confusing story that I think complicates an interpretation of the seventh commandment, which is the adultery one. Uh, and I think you all know what we're going to talk about this morning, and I'm sure you've heard many sermons in your lifetime, either ad hoc for or elsewhere. And maybe like me, you grew up influenced by purity culture um, through within the church until you went to college and at, at the peak of the Me Too movement. And maybe for some of you, you don't really know what it is yet, but that's fine. When women and men um, shared numerous stories of the violation of their sexuality on college campuses, in workplaces, at home, and ultimately what seemed like in any uh, partially isolated or crowded area. So this is a little bit of what the Me Too movement um, covered and continues to. Perhaps today, some of you question sexuality and sexual identity, which are somewhat silent topics in the Bible, except for some very specific passages in the New Testament, which carry a variety of interpretations. In all of this and throughout the history of the church in our lives, the church has cultivated a certain language when it comes to these discussions, and I want to be very respectful of that language and thinking this morning. At the same time, I come in and want to be very straightforward. I am speaking from very limited experience and perspective, which I understand um, prohibits me from speaking into 
your experiences today in many ways. But I would like to interpret the Genesis passage by looking at the emotions and experiences of Tamar and Judah. I want to reference Matthew to talk a little bit about who Jesus is in these narratives. And finally, I want to dive deep into the well of Jacob in the Gospel of John, where um, we might come to an understanding of the spirit's involvement in our physicality and in our physical experiences. And I do want to leave space for you to ponder through your perspectives. So there are going to be some questions that are going to just be rhetorical without any responses, any uh, guidance about how to think about these. I trust that you are, like I said, very mature and able to think of these things yourself. And in asking these questions, I hope that you are true to yourself because this matters. What we want from our relationships with other people and who we are in those relationships uh, may be defined earlier on so that the choices we make, whether out of our freedom or under pressure, continue a cycle of life. Ultimately, I want you to remember, and I'm sure you know, that you are a child of God, a reflection of his magnificent magnificent and mysterious image. Uh, we'll keep it on this side. Tamar reflects that magnificent and mysterious image too. And we'll look at the story. And please do read while I speak. Like Judah, Tamar desires stability, security, and belonging in a world where widows were not promised any of that. In the first few verses of chapter 38, we see Judah separating from his family and moving to a foreign land where he sought stability by marrying Shua, a Canaanite woman, which has a little bit of a com uh, complexity between the respective cultures of a Jewish man and a Canaanite woman. Nevertheless, Judah's taking matters into his own hands, being independent, securing stability as a foreigner in this land. So Shua gave birth to not one, not two, but to three sons. And for Judah, well, he has received a portion of, ble uh, of the blessing of security. Surely the Lord was indeed good, though the Lord's name is not mentioned until the sudden death of his firstborn son. We do not know what uh, Ur, uh, Ur's wickedness um, included, meant, but the mystery of it does leave us wondering if Tamar might have been a victim of his behavior. And perhaps Judah was convinced that Ur deserved the punishment he received, so no reason to fret because even though Tamar is a widow, she can go to the second son, whose name is Onan. But Onan's actions were not a mystery. Withdrawing before ejaculation was deemed displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. And so Onan also died. At this point, Tamar's body has been used and displaced by two men, both of whom died. What do you think she's thinking at this point? The same questions that Judah might've been asking, where am I going? How will I survive? 
Is there something wrong with me? Could I be the reason behind their sudden death? I know that Judah's youngest son is far too young and I'm not getting any younger. Where can I go? And Judah brings in his logical thinking through the lens of securing his and his family's livelihood. So he decides to keep Tamar away from his youngest son with the potential of, you know, um, getting them married a little bit later. He sends her to live with her family, choosing to sort of forget the vow maybe that she would eventually have to marry his youngest son. It's kind of shelving it, hoping that we won't return. So we don't really know how many years took place between that separation of Tamar going to live with her family and the death of Shua. And we don't know when Judah decides to travel to Anaim. Up to this point, Judah continued to live his life depending on himself, seeking out safety and security for his family, disregarding perhaps the familial bonds that Tamar held with him through the marriage to his two sons. So when Judah beheld her sitting on the road to Anaim, he was moved by desperate desire. And perhaps since he is a widower, there wouldn't be any repercussions. Regardless, he desired the veiled woman and made a vow to repay her for her services. But Tamar is also not the young woman who obeyed and followed the commands that Judah gave her a few years before. She took matters into her own hands with a similar determination of survival, willingly taking a risk and believing that the reward would outweigh the cost. When the moment of confrontation came, Judah respected Tamar's shrewdness. She gave birth to two sons. And this is where I am really confused by this story because life, which is good, comes out of the decisions that Judah and Tamar made. And to add to this sin that um, Judah and Tamar participated in, the genealogy of Jesus includes Tamar as the first woman in the story. In the first three verses. And what's even better is that the whole genealogy genealogy only includes four women, according to the Gospel of Matthew. Rahab, who was a prostitute. Ruth, who was a foreigner. And Mary, the mother of Jesus Messiah. And for me, this suggests two things. That your vocation, your profession, should not dictate what you can bring into this world and what you can do with what you you have been given. And the other idea that I'd like to highlight is that um, all the men and women leading up to Mary and Joseph, like I said, were fairly complicated people. And yet, generation after generation, 
generation after generation, layers were peeled back to reveal two very simple humans who had very lowly occupations in a tiny town. She was a virgin and he was a carpenter. And that's all we know about them. And yet they were the ones that carried out the mission to bring life out of nothing. But all of these generations are a reflection of how the seventh commandment to abstain from adultery is repeatedly broken and manipulated by men and women in the Bible, both physically and spiritually also to add to that. So the moral code, the 10 commandments are in place, but people make decisions turning away from that uh, written um, moral code. And there are not thousands, but many stories of victims of harassment, assault, and rape in the Bible who didn't have the same story as Tamar. Their voices were silent, silenced, as are the stories of people living in the 21st century are. I hope that we're beginning to draw parallels about the stories in the Bible as reflective of a continuous cycle of humans making decisions based on their desires without regard for the personhood and dignity of the other. I want to be very careful here because I know many of you, but I don't know all of you. I am ignorant of your personal stories and I don't want to generalize anything in regards to the experiences you have had. But if you have experienced any level of violation to your body or mind, or if you have been the perpetrator of causing pain to another person, I think it's a miracle that we're all gathered here right now. We are the sum of all of these experiences, but we are also uniquely individual. And while we might never open up about stories that are quite dark, I'm sure that a sense of shame is not unfamiliar to all of us, whether it has to do with our sexuality or it has to do with anything else in our life. We must learn to be there for one another. And that's kind of what we've been talking about for so many months now. Because as we learn through the story of Tamar and Judah, the sins that we commit, the actions and decisions that we make, sins as in breaking away from that moral code, these experiences, these decisions are not the conclusion of our stories. What we feel, the shame, the agony, the pain, the tears, maybe the pride even, should not be disregarded in light of this. No, rather, what I would like to call all of you to this morning is that as you experience joy and delight and happiness, you are also capable of experiencing brokenness, 
and regret as image bearers of God. I am avoiding generalizations or trying to at least, but I think that we can make at least three in regards to who God is in this commandment and who God is in the story of Judah and Tamar. God does not look away, even if he takes away, as in the example of Ur and Onan. God beholds the condition that we are in and gives us time to mature, heal, and start over. And for some of us, that might take an entire lifetime. God is, was, continues to be involved in the story of Tamar and Judah because we're reading it this morning. As God is involved in the story of Mary and Joseph, as God is involved in the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, when he escaped from Potiphar's wife, as God is involved in the story of your parents, and as God is involved in your story, it doesn't seem that God takes away all experiences of shame. Rather, he allows humans to feel it, whether internally or externally. And he moves deeply and powerfully towards restoring hope and life. The genealogy of Jesus is an ancestry of shame upon shame, where God was fully involved. Judah was ashamed for mistaking his daughter-in-law with a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute living in one of the most undesirable locations in a city's walls, a daily reminder of the shamefulness of her occupation. Ruth was ashamed as a widow and foreigner gathering scraps of the man who was related to Naomi. Mary was ashamed to the point of potential death when she became pregnant before wedlock. And today, young men and women continue to be shamed, especially in small communities where moral law and the honor code are esteemed to the highest degree. And here are some things that I personally have taken out of the story. I believe that the Ten Commandments, I believe that moral laws that have been instilled through generations are necessary and that honor should be carefully credited where it is due. I think that we make decisions that can go in many different ways. And nevertheless, I believe that decisions regarding one of the most intimate things, our sexuality, our sexual desires, our identity, are part of the equation of our life. And while moral laws, thou shalt not do this or this or this, guide us towards right living, I sense that the, that righteous living, as we've been talking about, is the culmination of the way that we treat ourselves and the way we treat others constantly. In this, we must learn to develop a practice of honoring God who created each of us. And I'm very grateful that over the past, I think, six months, we've, every speaker that has come has been talking about the two commandments, to love God and to love people. And this morning, my driving point will be that I also want us to consider 
that we are those people and that we may love ourselves not in our narcissistic sort of way like oh my gosh i love my body and check me out no rather in a love that makes decisions that benefit our physical mental or spiritual well-being because if those areas in our lives are not healthy if we don't treat our bodies healthily how can we expect to treat others in a healthy way so we begin to think about the commandment to withhold from adultery through the perspective of how we treat our bodies and how that informs the way we treat other people's bodies not finger pointing and whispering or covering your mouth like i thought the emoji meant about a young woman who might who becomes pregnant at 16 even though her parents are good christian people shaming another person allowing that those words of shame to come out of our mouth um, allows those words and those thoughts to pollute our minds spreading like a disease into the minds of other people and i wonder what would happen to the global church if instead of chatting 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 about someone we invited them to have a meal and filled our mouth with something delicious and edifying for our bodies together instead of chattering about that person behind their back because as we treat our bodies well and as we fellowship with one another who is also treating their body well through the food through the enjoyment of physical exercise or anything else um we are living into that commandment to love god and to love people and not commit adultery or lying or stealing we are image bearers of god we honor god and in uh, in a way we must also honor his image in us and so we turn to the first questions that have been up here for a while what do you want from relationships with the people uh, with other people and who are you in those relationships and i think that our generation uh millennial/gen z has a very hard time verbalizing exactly what we want because we want a whole bunch of different things are we also able to acknowledge that other people in our lives are not going to be perfect that the significant other might not be the person that they appear to be when we first meet them as you make choices to move towards an individual in your life physically have you identified what you want in a sexual relationship in a friendship relationship in really any relationship with another person i think more often than not we don't and we just kind of go for it the promises you make to another person whether they are verbal or legal like as in a marriage document they have meaning so don't avoid communicating if you feel that someone is crossing the boundaries of those promises these questions are not meant to cause you to withdraw from pursuing relationships with other people no rather i hope that each of us might experience the fullness of life on our own and with another so that the fullness of god might be multiplied through the generations that will spring forth because despite tamar's and judah's rapid decision god gives them what he had taken away two sons what fullness of joy ah uh, finally the story of the samaritan woman and jesus 
She is unnamed. All we know is that she's Samaritan and technically not supposed to speak to Jesus. She stood before the face of God, not comprehending that fullness of drinking water that would quench someone's thirst forever. The water that gives life so abundant and eternal that you no longer desire it for your livelihood. Jesus asks her to call her husband. We know the story. Knowing that she has five and the sixth one is not her husband. I think here Jesus subtly suggests you've had several husbands whom you have desired, changed your mind, desired another, changed your mind, desired another. And at this point, you're not even sure whether the man that you're living with is considered your husband. Of course, for her, the idea of ceasing from physical desire, perhaps, is intriguing because perhaps it will allow her to break the cycle of dependence. And yet that's not what Jesus is bringing to conclusion because it is the centrality of this message that Beatrice read that I think is very interesting. Yet a time is coming, she read, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. The fullness and abundance of God's life-giving movement in this world should bring forth celebration, jubilation. As we honor our bodies, allowing ourselves to experience the fullness of life through the care of our being by enjoying making choices that benefit you so that you may live a long and beautiful life, by enjoying every meal that you eat. Don't eat alone, eat it with another person. Enjoy the physicality of your body and live into every experience, every feeling and uh, emotion, perhaps the discomfort of a hot day or the comfort of a cold shower. These are just very simple things to think about. And I hope that you all enjoy waking up and falling asleep and ask yourself whether or not, I have to ask myself this all the time, whether or not having my phone will add to that fullness of blissful sleep. We are called to abstain from judging others' decisions. But are we making conscious decisions that might add or take away from our physical experience and mental pondering? I hope I still have all of yours attention, but if not, can we just kind of gather up together now? Can we make a covenant, a promise as a community? in our respective small groups, not in the large group, we don't have to do that. That regardless of what happens to a single member of our group, we will care deeply and truly if a single one of us is hurt or mistreated. And we will confront each other boldly when someone in our midst is actively causing pain to another person. It might not be comfortable, we might be a little bit scared, but let's make a covenant perhaps to do that. Finally, finally, for sure, I promise. Okay, what does the honoring of our bodies and the honoring of other bodies bring us towards? And this is what Jesus is talking about, the true worship, the Trinitarian worship involving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a big idea, this Trinity thing or person's but it's actually pretty cool when we contextualize the greatness 
of them through this morning's message. We already talked about who God is in these stories. God is the one who punishes wickedness. We know that side of God. Kills, well, doesn't kill, but takes away the life of Judah's sons. But God is also on the other side of that, bringing life out of something which was deemed shamefully lifeless. Moving on. Who is Jesus in these stories? He is Tamar's descendant. And that's pretty clear from the first three verses. He is the impossible good through the virgin birth. And he's the one who sat next to the woman with many husbands. Because Jesus saw past her identity and her choices. That didn't matter to him. He cared about the life that she lived in the community that she was in. Finally, who is the spirit in the story? The spirit is the way of life. The spirit is the way we worship when we speak, when we eat, when we fall in love, when we have sex, when we cry, when we argue even. The spirit is present. Amen. And it's a true reflection. And the spirit is a true reflection of who we are. But we are simple human beings who are constantly messing up. We are writers of the law. We have created certain rules and regulations that help us exercise our agency. And the spirit allows us to continue the cycles of life from generation to generation. And I want to add one more thing I took up my notes. I want to urge you this morning to feed into the cycles in your life that are life-giving, that are generous, and that are generational. And this is not my idea. This is someone else's idea. I can give you their book. It's very good. Um, So that in all that we do, we humbly accept that what we experience in this very moment is the beginning the continuation and the hope which draw out all of these three beginning continuation and hope which draw out of the abundance of god's living water and breathing spirit and i'll read the benediction after our last song <laughs>